Hi everyone, I'm Lois Snyder, founder of Periwinkler's Architectural Millwork and Cabinetry and board member of the Cabinet Makers Association. I'd like to welcome you to episode four of Pro Cabinet Maker, a monthly podcast introduced by the CMA. Each month we'll chat with some outstanding industry professionals about the issues and challenges impacting their businesses as well as success stories to inspire. My guest today is Paul Downs, founder and president of Paul Downs Custom Conference Tables. Paul founded the company when he was fresh out of college in 1985. Long retired from the bench, Paul now acts as general manager. In addition to running the business, Paul is a prolific writer. I'm looking forward to the discussion, so let's welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thanks, Lois. Very nice talk to you. Awesome. Lois, do you remember when we met in Florida? I do. That was last year at the AWI conference in Naples. That's right. And I can't remember exactly when in the conference, but you made an impression on me because, first of all, the name of your company is not your name. Why did you choose that? Uh, well, I've had other companies in the past, and no one ever cared about what the company was called. And Periwinkle is my favorite color. And uh, my husband suggested, how about Periwinkle? And there we are. That's good. Do your, do your employees ever object to being known as the Periwinklers? Uh, they do not. There have been a few guys that didn't want to wear the Periwinkle shirt, which was kind of funny, but we've actually gone to black and Periwinkle, which is kind of cool. And um, I guess that question kind of leads to people who fit your company culture, right? Well, it does. And I guess we should say a little bit about what we intend to talk about this morning. This conversation is going to be an introduction to a longer presentation that I'm going to be giving at the CMA convention in Nashville in a few weeks. And I was asked to talk about my experience in developing company culture and uh, how that's worked out for me and what I think the benefits are of trying to be conscious about your company's culture. Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing. You know, how, how has your business or my business evolved over the years? And we're about the same age, the same kind of timeline. So it's uh, certainly interesting. Before we started recording, you actually asked a really interesting question, which is a great lead in to the rest of the conversation. And I'm going to ask you a question which is, what kind of boss do you think you are? Right, and you actually asked me that question four months ago um, in an email that we were kind of discussing these things, and truly, I, I don't know. Like, I can't even wrap my head around what kind of boss am I, and I've had a lot of time to think about it, so. Well, do you like having control over others? Do you enjoy the exercise of power? I enjoy the design process. I enjoy the execution process. I enjoy teaching people, but I do not really enjoy the day-to-day -day grind of having to keep a lot of people in the right direction. You know what? You sound exactly like me. I don't, I don't think that there are very many cabinet makers or woodworkers who got into the profession because they had a thirst to lord it over other people. Most of us are driven by our desire to make things and to do a good job doing that. And dealing with people is just an unpleasant necessity that we have to do in order to keep the opportunities to do what we really want to do coming. Right. Would you agree? I would agree. And actually, even um, the way that my business is, my business model at this point, doing commercial restaurants with, you know, these huge deep teams of architects and designers, 
it leaves me out of the negotiating. I don't have to negotiate with anyone anymore, and I really like that. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's just a different kind of place to be. So you have an, an active aversion to doing a lot of the things that people think of as being boss duties. That's correct. Like when you say someone's bossing me around, it's never a good thing. But that's not really your personality at all. You're much more low-key. And, and I think that this is a good moment to talk about what my reaction to that same question would be. Because if you'd asked me 15 years ago, I would have said exactly the same thing you did, which is, I just want to get cool work done. I want to, you know, make payroll. I don't really want to do anything more than I need to. Like, I personally have a real aversion to getting into people's business. I think that the people who work for me should enjoy some autonomy, and I really hate the idea of companies that try to pretend to be family. When a company says, oh, we're a big family, my back gets up immediately. That's not at all who I am. How, how about you? Do you ever have the feeling you want to present yourself as family? Uh, well, my family could be difficult, so no. Um, <laughs> but I do. I mean, I like to come to work, and one of my phrases is, I don't want any Eeyores working here. At this point, we want to come to work. Okay, we didn't come here to have fun, but let's get the work done and not torture each other in the process, right? I mean, that's actually the perfect reason why somebody in your position or my position before I started thinking about culture might want to begin thinking about culture. Let's get the work done without torturing each other. I mean, who could disagree with that as a, a goal? And I went through couple of decades of wishing that would happen without doing anything to make it happen. And so every organization that's more than two people develops some kind of culture. It just will, because that's how humans work in groups. They're going to start making understandings with each other in order to get along. And you're going to run into situations where the understanding you have with other people, it turns out, is not shared. And then there's conflict and then there's trouble. Does that, has that ever happened in your shop? Oh, hell yeah. Can you give me an example? Uh, well, I had someone on flex time and I said, well, how about if just once a week you come in at 7.30 and we have a company meeting so everyone could be there? Doesn't really tell me why he couldn't come, but the next day he comes in and he says, I'm quitting. How come? because I can't make it to the meeting. It turns out he had to take his daughter to school in the morning. She had some sort of issues and COVID and so on. I said, fine, all right. Summer comes around and we still can't make it to the meeting. And I just feel like some of those things that we keep agreeing or not agreeing to, you know, like you talk about, maybe some are even unspoken agreements, um, become very difficult. The whole flex time thing is really hard for me because I feel like it's extending my work week. Mm-hmm. Well, flex time is one of the things that we've implemented in my company pretty successfully. And for the exact reason that your employee had a problem, which is that I've got employees with long commutes, I've got employees with little kids, I've got employees with taking care of aging parents. And what we ask them to do is just come up with a schedule that they can be consistent about, and then we work around it. And right. the, the good news is people don't quit every week. <laughs> right. You know, I, I have people on flex time. I have a guy, my draftsman who lives in Nashville. One of my estimators go between Scotland and, and Florida. So I actually got iPads for everyone and have set them up so that we could have at least Zoom meetings with the company and, you know, everybody can kind of be face to face. 
Okay, well, let's back up one level. So this is a pretty good example of your employee had an expectation and a desire, and you had an expectation and a desire, and they did not intersect, but nobody had ever discussed it. So it's probably one of many situations that could possibly arise with a workforce where some clarification right from the get-go would have been way helpful. Do you agree? Absolutely. And that, in the end, is why I started thinking more carefully about culture. Now, I went a long, long time without doing anything about it and got my company up to the point of 22 employees without any attempt to deal with this. And that was before the first recession. Then we went back down to six employees in 2009 and building back up, building back up, and I'm at 26 people now. I started thinking about culture really at the end of 2017 and 2018 for a couple of reasons. One, I'm in a business group where I meet with leaders of other companies that are not woodworkers, and this has been very valuable to me. We saw a number of the other companies in this group roll out programs where they tried to address and improve their own culture. And so I got a chance to kind of watch it in action over a number of years and see what worked, what didn't work, and also what worked for the people who were doing it and what didn't work for the people who were doing it, and came away with a couple of basic principles. First of all, if you don't define your culture, your culture will define itself. And this is the state most of us were in, or it sounds like you're in now, Lois, where you have the basic idea of, of people should show up and they should glue pieces of wood together and make stuff. And that's all well and good. But a lot of the rest is just left up to whoever is, whatever pair of people are dealing with each other in your company. Uh, we've actually come a long way learning through the CMA and AWI. So we've developed our own sort of company culture and try to put all this together. And if we have any writing, we talk about it, we go over it. So if people are blindsided, I feel like I have trouble spotting who is a good hire. I've even like gotten to the point where it's like, wow, I don't know anymore. Like, I think this person's going to be great. And, you know, it doesn't. Do you use the culture guidelines you developed while you're hiring? I do. I talk about different things that we do. I've also, um, you know, little shop tests or I've, I've even used your shop test. So I'm starting to incorporate because that's something we talk about a lot in the CMA is, you know, I mean, our hiring and our company culture and you know, our day-to-day -day workings are what we struggle with, right? I'm a great craftsman. I'm a good designer. I'm a good CAD person. I could even set up IT, but <laughs> the people. That leads into my, my second point about what I observed watching other company heads do this, which is that whatever program you roll out has to be kind of an authentic extension of who you are, that if it's just bullshit, everybody can smell that from a mile away. So that means that whatever you bring to the table are going to be the boundaries of what you can do. And when we talk about who somebody is, where they came from, what was their childhood like, how were they taught to react to bad situations, what are their attitudes towards this or that, a lot of that comes to us pre-wired, and there's not a ton we can do about our first reaction, our quick reaction to things that happen. But there's another way to deal with that, which is to try to, within the bounds of who you are, figure out what is the best way to deal with things and to be conscious about how you respond to situations. So one of my rules for myself is if I'm angry, 
I try never to show it to an employee. And, you know, it's just like, I can be very angry person. <laughs> I can get furious, but it doesn't help to let it all rip right in front of the a group of your workers. And so you have to learn to temper that. Sure. And I think that there's a lot of aspects of all of our personalities that we've, over time, we've learned to temper. We're not all the same hotheads we were at age 16. And uh, thank God for that. But being a leader and being a boss is a role that we have to learn to play. And sometimes that means learning to be more assertive, or sometimes it means having to be less assertive. You have to kind of have a sense of who you are and think about what you want to do and then figure out, well, what are the things about me that are going to help me to my goals? And what are the things about me that are going to keep me from my goals? Does that all make sense to you? Yeah, it does. For sure, it does. Uh, it's something that we talk about, you know, not losing your cool when your buttons are being pushed or whatever it is. Well, I'm going to roll out a concept here that I'm going to talk about more in my presentation. But for those that can't make it, when I started thinking about culture, one of the things that prompted me to do it was I hired a guy who was just coming out of the military. And he was he's in the special forces in something called the SWIC boats, which is sort of like Navy SEALs, they do the same qualification, but instead of swimming, they're in boats. So if you think of Navy SEALs in boats, SWIC boats. And that means that this guy has gone through an extremely intense training process. And then when he was deployed, he was in small group situations where the people really had to rely on each other. And there's a huge emphasis on culture, training, preparation, that community is is got a ton of resources available to them, and they really make use of it. But what was interesting to me, two things. When Damien showed up, the first thing he asked me was, hey, how do I qualify for the next level? What have you got in terms of training programs? What are, how would I, you know, if I'm going to start as a new guy, how do I get to be the old head? And I didn't really have an answer for him because I'd never really thought about it. And then the other thing was he was unlike many veterans, actually pretty open about his service and some of the things he'd done. And I realized that he was going to be a tremendous resource in thinking about how a culture of life and death, you know, like in the military, you really got to rely on your buddies, but they're taking pretty much ordinary people and turning them into these supermen and superwomen. And so, okay, in a small cabinet shop or my company, we're not getting what many people consider to be the best and brightest as, as the employees. Like nobody graduates from Harvard Business School and then goes and works from Perry Winkler's or Paul Downs Cabinet Makers. It just doesn't happen. We have to make do with ordinary people. Now, ordinary people, there's nothing bad about them. They, you know, they, they, there's zillions of diamonds in the rough, but you can't count on anything extraordinary walking in the door. And so, what I saw with Damien, he's a very, very ordinary guy and was turned into a Superman. And I wanted to hear about how that happened and the specifics of it. And he was willing to share that with me. So that was really interesting. And I started thinking about, okay, the military, they're a successful organization. They're able to attract people, take them in, train them, deploy them in an operational role and promote them and then they, people pop out the other end, they retire. And this has been going on for a couple of hundred years. 
And that's very impressive. Now, nobody who runs a cabinet shop has the same resources that the military has. We have to work with a lot less. And so then I started thinking about other organizations. What are other organizations that are incredibly successful that basically started with no resources? And the answer is religions. You know, like Jesus Christ or Muhammad or, or anybody who founded a religion started as just one person in a village somewhere and somehow got it to go to be an earth-shaking endeavor. And how do they do it? Well, they do it with what I call the three R's. They have rules, they have rituals, and they repeat them. Rules, rituals, repetition. So it sounds like, Lois, you've got rules, and I don't know, do you have any rituals? Some, not a lot. And how, how do you think about repetition? Well, I teach a lot of people, like I prefer, and I, that's a question for you, like are you training people? Like are you taking someone who considers themselves a master craftsman and bringing, I have more trouble with that than actually taking six months or whatever it is and teaching someone what it is we do. And then I have a sort of much better total grasp on it. Well, backing up, I would say that it sounds like, I mean, we'll address that issue of what they walk in the door with in a minute. But my training method is we're going to tell you what the rules are and we're going to show you what to do. But I coach my people to expect to repeat everything constantly. And that's how, again, how religions work. Like, there's no surprise in the Bible anymore, but they still bring you in every Sunday morning, sit you down at the same time. That's a ritual and then tell you the same stuff over and over again. And that actually is very effective for maintaining an expectation. If you have expectation of people and you don't repeat what you expect of them, you're asking for failure. Now, this runs into what I call the boss's fantasy, which is that you have an employee, you hire them, shake hands, you say, I need you to do this or that, and they go over in the corner and they start doing it and then you never talk to them again. That's the fantasy employee, right? They just produce whatever you think, and they need no guidance, and you don't have to tell them anything, and they, they read your mind, and they're just blowing work out the door. Mm-hmm. And that never, ever happens. It can't happen. Right. It's impossible. But we wish it would happen. So particularly when we're having trouble in our own business, we just wish the employees would stop bugging us and do what I told them to do on day one. That would be awesome, but it will not happen. It will never happen. So I've become used to the concept that whatever I decide to do, I'm going to have to repeat that instruction constantly. And I tell my shop managers that and everybody in the company that, hey, whatever we do, you're going to hear it over and over again, because if it's important, you need to be reminded. And if you're not reminded, people will fill in whatever with whatever is in their head at any given moment, rather than what you want them to be thinking about. That definitely happens in my shop. I mean, I go, I, I teach, I go over, I watch, I have them execute. I'm always checking back, always checking in. And then I might have that person teach the next person. And so two of my employees are very good teachers. Um, and in that sense, and we kind of goes back to the Montessori way, but that's, that's what I've learned. So uh, we definitely do that. I think also because we're not a production shop, we don't do a lot of production. We do a lot of specialties things. So it definitely requires a lot more of that, always going back and making sure. 
Yeah, I mean, we're we're in the same boat. It's custom every day. It's always different. And we have to drag people back to the basics constantly because they're going to start getting caught up in this detail or that detail or this possibility or that possibility and just drift way off course. And that can happen in any way. It can be technically they can drift off course. It can be temperament. It can be dealing with their coworkers. It can be their own personal discipline about you know, you have an employee who shows up like clockwork for 20 years and then all of a sudden they're not. And all those things can be dealt with in a culture program if you set it up correctly. So after talking with Damien, my, my ex Navy SEAL guy, and thinking about how I wanted to have my own shop run, I thought about another set of ideas that I'd heard from my business group. And this was based on a gentleman named David Friedman, who was running an accounting firm in New Jersey back in the 90s. And he said that he had thought about mission statements, which a lot of companies have, you know, like, we should be good, or we should do no evil, like at Google. And mission statements are fine, but they're never detailed. And David Friedman's insight was that you need more detail to actually operate that people need a little bit more than just vague statements of what they wish would happen or they need detail. And so that if you're going to define a company's culture, it shouldn't be all that short. And he started putting together a set of bullet points for his employees that covered pretty much everything, you know, when you show up to work and, and how you dealt with clients and how you dealt with each other. And, and it was fairly detailed without being incredibly detailed. It wasn't the federal code, but it was 26 statements, each one maybe 30 words. And if you read through all of them, you had a very good idea of what David Friedman's company was about and what you would have to do in order to fit in. And if you read between the lines, you could sort of figure out what you don't want to do if you, if you want to stay there. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. So I started writing statements about how I want my people to get along and how I want them to deal with trouble when trouble arrives. And then expanded that later on into some positive statements about what the company is about. You know, like, why do you come to work? And that's also been very helpful because you can have statements about what people should do and how they should do it and when they should do it. But if you can't come up with why people need to do it, it's hard to get them to really buy in. And again, think about religions or think about joining the military or to think about any organization that's kind of mission-driven. Well, the why you do these things is upfront. Why do you believe in God? Well, you know, there's a lot of benefits that come from it. Why do you join the military to help defend your country? Those are big missions. And we should be able to figure out some reason for people to come in and put cabinets together every day. I mean, they're already doing it. And money is part of the answer, but it's not the entire answer. So I came up with two concepts that are the headlines for why people should work in my company. And number one is craftsmanship, because most of the people who go into woodworking really want to be craftspeople. They want to do a good job. They want to make beautiful things and do it well. And the second thing is prosperity. And the idea being that we would deliver craftsmanship to our clients and we would deliver prosperity to us. 
that if we can arrange this business well, then we can create a situation where everybody is getting as much out of it as possible. And the goal being that they can have a good work life, do great work, go home and enjoy a reasonable home life. People who don't enter woodworking to get rich, but we should be able to find a way to ensure a basic middle-class life where you can buy a house and afford a car and go on vacation and do a few things beyond just the bare minimum. And now I know that cabinet making in general is, has been a profession that struggles with rounding up the resources required to pay people well, that you're in competitive businesses where you're competing with Home Depot and Chinese cabinets and this and that and the other thing. And it's often hard to get enough money out of your clients to really have a prosperous life, but it's not impossible. And so that was my cultural journey. I started thinking about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And there's going to be a handout available to the CMA members who attend the conference and maybe others as well that has all those points that I wrote in it. I don't really want to read them to you all here. That would just take a while. Everybody's going to want to come up with their own version of it too. There's things that I do that probably you would not want to do. And there's things that you do that I would not want to do. And I think that that can wrap us around to if you roll out the culture statements, they have to be an accurate reflection of who you are as a boss. And they should also be something that you can personally get behind. Because when you roll out culture, and this is crystal clear from the experience of my other business group members, it has to come from the boss. You can't just hand it off to people and say, hey, we need a culture, give me one. And, uh, you know, I'll talk to you in a week. It doesn't work like that. This is going to be a boss-driven effort, and the boss has to be on it constantly. And so getting back to rules, rituals, and repetition, the boss is going to write the rules. The boss is going to start performing the rituals, and that may be just a weekly meeting or whatever you do over and over again. And the boss is going to have to make sure that all that gets repeated because it's natural for any effort that anybody makes to kind of peter out fairly quickly unless someone puts some effort into making sure it keeps going. The Cabinet Makers Association helps shops grow and our shared benefits include feedback and advice from peers, news about industry innovation and events, participation in leadership teams, and early awareness of both design and equipment trends. We also work together to acknowledge and promote the professional accomplishments of our fellow members and participate in programs and publications designed exclusively for small shop owners. The CMA will reach a major milestone this coming March when we celebrate two and a half decades of service to the industry. The 25th Anniversary National Conference takes place March 8th through the 10th at the Renaissance Hotel in downtown Nashville. The agenda is rich with enticing speakers, local plant tours, and plenty of networking opportunities. Over the past quarter of a century, the CMA has grown to include hundreds of small to medium-sized cabinet, millwork, and furniture shops across the U.S. and Canada. When wood shops come together as a group, each one becomes stronger. Learn more at cabinetmakers.org. So Lois, tell me a little bit about any good experiences or bad experience you've had since you rolled out the culture. Well, most of it has been pretty good, I would say, understanding the guidelines and the way we're working. 
But I do have a problem definitely dealing with people all the time. Like I, I just, I don't know. Some days I just don't feel like I have it in me or I guess maybe, maybe I don't know how to fight properly, you know, because you talk about when things go awry, you know, I, I have a tendency to get silent and not get loud. Do you have anything in your culture statements about how you have disagreements? No. At any ground rules? No. I did read it in yours, though. That's actually been one of the most useful things that I came up with, was the idea that if you're going to fight with people, if you're going to disagree with people, it's going to happen. It's right. it's absolutely going to happen. That's That's humanity. And then how do you do it? And what is the goal at the end? Right. And so we had some ground rules. Number one, our work is difficult, and it's inevitable that stressful situations will arise. Number two, anger may be unavoidable, but our expression of it is completely under our control. Now, that's actually a debatable statement because some people can't control themselves, but it's aspirational. We're going to write it down, and that's, that's what we're going to aim for. Anger may be unavoidable, but our expression of it is completely under our control. Name-calling, insults, and physical aggression are never appropriate. Three, we have a duty to seek to understand why others aren't agreeing with us and to search for the validity of their point of view. Four, we must be open to the possibility that we are mistaken. We must be open to the possibility that our reflex reaction to challenges may be causing additional difficulties. And this is the the concept that I have that people bring their past with them into any employment situation and that you have no idea, like you may just say some innocent thing and it turns out that that's what one of your employees was uh, insulted with by their parents or their schoolmates or whatever and it just triggers an unavoidable reaction that you had no idea about. So a lot of people are trained from a very young age to react to stress different ways and a lot of those ways are not particularly helpful so in my statement, I'm just like, okay, that's a possibility, and we have to recognize that when it's happening. Right. Number five, we can defend our position using facts and reasoned arguments. Mere repetition of a point of view is not effective argument. And this is important, too, because a lot of people get in the habit of simply repeating whatever they're saying over and over again until they wear the other parties down. So we've already said, no, that's not okay. That's not in the rule book. When conflict can't be resolved immediately between the parties present, we will get an outside opinion. And that's usually two of my employees coming to me and saying, we've got a beef going on and uh, we need your help here. And then the last one is, we will accept decisions which, made in good faith and for the good of the company, may be counter to our personal wishes. In other words, if you're going to be part of this group, you're going to have to sometimes go along with decisions that you don't agree with. And when I see two employees having trouble with each other, or it's brought to my attention, the first thing I do is bring everybody into my office. In other words, get them away from the place they were fighting so that it becomes a different situation. It's clear to them when they're in my office that this is a little bit bigger deal than whatever the beef was. And then we start the meeting by having each one read all those points aloud and, and say, okay, I agree that this is the ground rules. And then we get into it. 
And that's been incredibly effective. And I think that aside from the particulars of what I just described, the concept that you have something in place kind of ready to go when trouble arrives is a critical one. And it's probably the reason why it's useful to help define your culture, to try to do this effort, is because it gives you a set of tools and a set of, of expectations and a way to, de to deal with all the different things that pop up in the course of doing business. Right. That brings me to another thing, actually, that, that I've done that has helped with rolling out our program, which is, and again, this is an idea I got from a fellow member of my business group, which is to spend significant amounts of time just talking to each employee one-on-one. -on -one. And the way I do this is to have scheduled individual one-on-one -on -one meetings with every single employee in my company at least twice a year and bring them in, sit them down, and ask them a question. What do I need to know about your home situation or anything that, that you have on, going on that would affect my understanding of how you do your work? And then the second question is, what do you want to know from me? What do you, what are you thinking? You know, like, are you wondering whether the company's got a future or are we doing well? Are we doing poorly? Anything you want to know, I'll talk about it. And those two questions have led to a really a much better understanding of what my people go through before they even get to work. I don't know, Lois, how well do you know your people? Well, some of them I know better than others. You know, I, I actually... The, the one guy was willing to quit instead of telling me, you know, that his 16-year-old daughter was going to high school and she had seizures and, you know, he had to drive her and no one else could drive her. Okay, fine. You know, I guess the good way to do this, sit people down, what do I need to know? Because it may cut things off where I could deal with it because a lot of times I, I can deal with it, but, you know, maybe sometimes it's time to let go and, and move on and not be afraid well, of that either. I think that gets back to your initial statement of what kind of boss you want to be. My personal style is I would like to know about these challenges that my employees have because often the company can do something to help. Yeah. And and then that help really helps cement loyalty to the company. Uh, when people see that the boss is making a reasonable accommodation for their own problems or even their coworkers' problems. It's a demonstration that they're part of an organization that gives a shit. Right. And that's very different from working for a lot of large corporations. And one of the things that we have to think about as small businesses is that we're attracting people who may not have the desire to work in some large and personal organization or the ability to work in that kind of situation, but they could be great employees if we meet each other halfway. And as a small business, you have the flexibility to do that. We don't have any shareholders or, you know, like we don't have to answer to anybody as bosses sure. for the most part. So you can do those things and that can be powerful in terms of attracting and retaining employees. Right. That you, is something that I do uh, for sure. I've helped people with medical bills. I've helped people, you know, extra time or sure, go ahead. I'm good about that. I'm... But do you, you wait until they come to you? Not necessarily. I try to be, I mean, I have conversations all the time. My dad was a, a business manager in the banking industry. And, uh, you know, he told me he used to keep a little notebook and he had at one point like 300 employees and he would go talk to people all the time. And then he'd go back and he'd make notes in his notebook. And so he could bring it up again in the future. 
and how much that that meant to people that that he cared about their families and wanted to somewhat know what's going on. But yes, I I try to do that also. Yeah, I think that's a tremendous practice. I try to do that too. Like I haven't had to deal with three hundred people. That's that's a lot. So I think making a conscious effort to do it. That's the ritual, and doing it on a regular basis, that's the repetition. That's really, you know, he, he got a lot done that way, right? For sure. Absolutely. No, he, was a, he was a great influence on the business side for me. Yeah. That's funny because my father was successful in business, but he never told me anything at all about anything he did. He had no interest whatsoever in giving me any guidance uh, on how to be a leader, how to be a business person. And I don't, know, I don't know why I never asked him, but it, it just never came up in all, all those years. And I had to get those ideas from peers and, and from other sources. But, you know, I envy you that you had someone right in the family who demonstrated that. Yeah, no, it was great. And they wrote me uh, FileMaker Pro databases and things like that, you know, 20 years ago or even more. So it's been a huge help. But like you said, the hardest thing for me is, you know, I love building. And I do like people. I wouldn't say I don't like people. I know. I'm not going to say, oh, I don't like people because that's crazy. Um, so, but identifying who's going to be a good match for me and maybe, you know, somebody who's a good match for me is not a good match for you, vice versa. Well, that brings to mind another little nugget of thought that I keep in mind constantly, which is that a lot of people try to make up for their deficits by doing more of what they're good at because it's just natural you want to get back into building, that's what feels right to you. But you're not going to change your situation until you get better at what you're bad at. And there's a number of different ways to do that. One is to just have somebody else do that stuff. But in a really small company, there's going to be a bunch of things that you don't particularly enjoy doing that are critical and that you're not good at. For me, for many years, it was that reaching out to the employees and sort of getting to know them. I didn't care. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to get involved with their troubles. And I suffered the consequences of that with turnover and problems and discipline for many, many decades. I thought that was just normal. It was when I was introduced to these ideas of, hey, you can have a culture, you can shape the culture, and you're going to get some benefits from doing it that's when I started to change my tune. And it's really been nothing but positive for me because guess what? Your employees are interesting people and they really appreciate it that somebody is listening to them. And as a matter of fact, I think that one of those basic human tendencies that people have is they're comfortable operating in hierarchies. And one of the things that makes people feel happiest is when someone who's got more status or power notices them and acts like they care. That's kind of what we wish would happen in many, many situations. But it's difficult to ask for it. And in most organizations, they kind of beat that expectation out of everybody uh, as fast as they can because it makes it harder to manage people. Again, in a small company, the boss has the freedom to do whatever they want. And there's nobody really looking over your shoulder. Nobody looks over my shoulder. And so I could be the person that I thought was more inspiring as opposed to the one that I was. And I was able to make that change and then roll that out. And it was has been very effective for me. Yeah, no, that's great. It is truly overwhelming at times for me. I mean, truly. It's like, isn't it enough? Everything that I have to do, when isn't it enough? Yep. 
<laughs> I know exactly that feeling. And the answer is no, it's not enough, right? No. Uh, employees will soak up an infinite amount of anything you tend to give them. And so part of it is that if you're going to give, you have to have expectations of what you're going to get. And again, writing down what your expectations for your employees are is a pretty good way to make that clear. And so when you're not getting from them what, what you need, you can point to the rule book and say, hey, you're breaking this rule. I need this from you. And another interesting thing that I've noticed is that I wrote my own rules. Like Paul Down sat down one day, wrote out all these bullet points, handed them to the people. They're my rules. It's my company. And there's no, no pretense that they came from anywhere other than out of my head. But after six months or a year, I could point to the rules and say, hey, these are the rules. And everybody would look at them as if they'd been handed down on a tablet from heaven. That a set of rules has its own power. And if they're reasonable and they're not insane, you can use that as a management technique, which is, you know, somebody's screwing up, you can go to them and say, you're screwing up. And they're like, well, well, blah, 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 blah. And I say, but those are the rules. Shrug. Those are the rules. And there's a, a basic acceptance of that. There are people on this earth who can't accept any rules at all, and you got to get rid of them. But right. if you have rules and they're reasonable, they have a life of their own and a power of their own. And you don't have to always have it be about, oh, I'm telling you to do this. You can step back and say, the rules are telling you to do this. And people have a different reaction to that. So when you bring people in, though, when you're interviewing them or when they get hired, is do they get the rules before that? Absolutely. That's a critical part of every hiring conversation I have. And so our process is, first we put out an ad, and the ad says, here's the kind of company we are. Not just, I'm looking for woodworkers, and you need to have 25 years of experience, and I'm going to pay you 12 bucks an hour. That's the, the most common kind of ad. Right. But my ad is more like, hey, I'm looking for a person who's willing to join an organization that does this. You're going to work with smart people. They're going to be hardworking people. There won't be any bozos. And we have rules to keep everybody in harmony. And I'm going to pay you well, and it's going to be a great job. In other words, I talk about what the company is, not the person I want to have. Right. And then... A lot of people respond to that because that's not the normal way to run an ad. And then I've got my choice of all the people who respond and bring in some for an interview. And when I bring in someone for an interview, again, I tell them exactly what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to come here. I'm going to, I expect you to be on time and uh, we're going to have some questions just like any other interview. And you're going to get a shop tour and, and an understanding of how we do our business. And then I'm going to give you a test. It's a written test, 50 questions, general math, geometry, woodworking knowledge. The point of the test is so that I know what you know. And it also, uh, I don't necessarily say this right in the end, but it also gives me a point of comparison. A lot of the questions on my test are just about reading carefully. And you'd be amazed at people who you tell them, hey, check your work. Are you sure? Bup, bup, bup they still answer things wrong because they just read the question wrong. So everybody gets an upfront expectation of what's going to happen. And then when they come in, we give them the tour. I talk to them, look at whatever they brought. 
give them the test. And if they score well on the test, then I'm like, okay, I probably want to hire this person. I make an instant decision because you can't wait around these days. No. And then I start trying to sell this person on the company. And having those culture guidelines is a great way to do it. Because when you think about it, first of all, changing jobs is an incredibly stressful thing for people. I haven't gone on a job interview since I was 18 years old, but I can just tell. <laughs> you know, you, you, everything you ever are going to see when you interview someone or when someone's thinking about quitting, that going to a new job situation is very, very stressful because nobody really knows what it's going to be. And it's also a situation when you go to a new workplace and you're expected to fit in where you're not really clear in most cases on what the rules are. Now, big organizations, like if I, when I went to work for McDonald's, yeah, I was given some rules and I was given a uniform and all that. But there was a lot, quite a bit that I learned on the first day of the job from my coworkers. And most of it was directly contradicting what the company had told me. And so uh, I think everybody's familiar with that kind of situation where you, you know, there's ostensibly a set of rules about how to do things, but in reality, they're completely different. And that uncertainty is really a challenge for people. Like you, you're quitting a job or you got fired from a job that you came to know, and now you're walking into complete unknown and you're going to be spending a ton of time and effort and your prosperity, your future depends on making a go of this. So people are very worried about it. And me being able to talk about, here's how this company works. Here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. These are the rules. This is what I expect of you. Uh, we have a set of new employee guidelines that says, here's exactly how you're going to be evaluated in the first 90 days. And I find that that's really a comfort for many of the people I want to hire, and that quite a few of them remarked that nobody else in any place they've ever worked at or interviewed for has put the same effort into just explaining what the company is about. And that's allowed me to attract some very, very good people. It doesn't always work, but it works well enough that I would never go back from it. I think so, I have a lot of homework, Paul. Well, all of this is stuff that when you look at the totality of it, it makes sense, but it's hard to roll it out. It's not something you can you can just do in one day. You know, like, Lois, if you go into Barry Winkler's tomorrow morning and you say, wow, I just had this kick-ass conversation with Paul Downs and everything's different now. Everything's different. You know, here we go. I'm going to drop 500 rules on you and we're going to have three one-on-one -on -one meetings today and it's right. going to be hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Yeah. It doesn't happen that way. All these things get rolled out bit by bit. But if you believe in them and you set up rituals around them and you repeat them, then people will go along with it. Right. And that's, again, how humans are wired. If we're in a group, we start to sniff around, try to figure out how do we you know, successfully be a part of the group. And if you see people doing something, pretty soon you're going to want to do it too. Like I've always wanted to do an experiment with my company. This is just a, kind of a funny thing that I've had in my mind which would be to I issue red hats to everybody except two people and then have some red hats lying around and then tell the 20, you got to wear the red hat and then just see what the other two do. I would bet you that within a week, everybody's wearing a red hat. 
And because that's just how humans go. We try to figure out how to get along with each other. That's our basic wiring. Now, again, there's individual variation in that. Some people are extremely group-oriented, and they even take on the role of enforcing the rules within the group. And then some people are extremely averse to being managed in any way, and they refuse to participate in anything that looks like rules. You got to get rid of those people if you've got one, no matter how good a craftsman they may be, because they're going to make it impossible for you to build a successful group. Right. Well, I think I think that's what I've just been through, actually, as someone who all of a sudden I'm like, I'm wondering who I, you know, am I working for you? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very tough. But the first thing would be to, before I get rid of anybody, we try to clearly identify what the problem is and what we want to have happen in order for them to stay in the group and give them a chance to fix their problems. And then if they continue to screw up, then they're gone. And I find that when I paid more attention to the health of the group and less attention to accommodating individuals, everybody ended up better off except the people we had to kick out of the group. (laughs) But I couldn't fix them. You know, I'd made every attempt, but uh, they just can't be here. And that you've probably, I don't know if you've encountered this, but when you've got somebody problematic and you put up with it and you put up with it, you're, you're making excuses for them and then you finally get rid of them or they quit, the next day, everybody else in the company is delighted, right? There's such a thing in the air. Everybody's so happy, like, why didn't you do that sooner? And that's a really critical lesson for any leader, which is that the people under you expect you to enforce the norms of the group. And if they see someone abusing them and the leader does nothing about it, then everybody else takes away the lesson that, oh, leader doesn't really care that this person is screwing up this way. And so why should I go the extra mile to, to do anything well? You know, well, that, that's absolutely true, or, or whatever it is. That, yeah, know, whatever. Whether it's the work or just the attitude towards <laughs> everyone else or, or whatever. Right. Anyway, it yeah. looks like we're running out of time here, Paul. Oh. I know we could go on and on forever. Okay. Well, I hope this has been useful. And uh, I know you were supposed to interview me, and I ended up interviewing you, so I apologize for that. Hey, it's great, and I, I greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us, Paul, and thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Pro Cabinet Maker. Join us each month as we discuss trends that impact the woodworking industry, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or whenever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about Cabinet Makers Association, be sure to visit us online at cabinetmakers.org. And we'll see you next time. And thanks again, Paul. And I can't wait to uh, get with you in Nashville. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks again.